Hello and welcome to the Idaho Reports podcast for November 17th. I'm Melissa Davlin and today I'm joined by producer Ruth Brown and associate producer Logan Finney to discuss the end of the reconvened legislative session as well as the latest legal challenge to the redrawn legislative map submitted by the Commission for Reappointment. On Monday, lawmakers came back to Boise to consider bills opposing vaccine and testing mandates from the Biden administration, as well as other proposals related to COVID-19 and public health measures. The House and Senate both adjourned sine die on Wednesday afternoon. After three days and 36 draft pieces of legislation introduced before 9 a.m. on Monday, Ruth, what did the legislature end up doing by the time they left town? They passed one Senate joint resolution. As you said, they introduced 36 pieces of legislation. The only um, piece of legislation that passed was a Senate joint memorial, which is essentially a letter to Congress, to President Biden, um, asking them to challenge um, the Biden administration's executive orders on uh, vaccine mandates. That strongly worded letter is pretty much the same as what they've been doing this entire time with court filings and taking public stances against these mandates. This joint memorial doesn't really do anything different than that, does it? No, it is a formal stance that we as a legislature are asking you, our congressional delegation, to do this. We do not agree with what the Biden administration has done, and that's that. Um, it did pass uh, in a voice vote, uh, so they were in agreement on uh, the memorial. However, all of the legislation that was introduced, I would say there was a lot of tension around it, and they could not come to agreement on any piece of legislation, at least not in three days. I wouldn't be surprised if they'll come to agreement in some in 2022. In three days, they couldn't make it happen. And, and before we discuss the bills that died in committee or in chairman's desk drawers, let's talk about the ethics committee report that the House adopted on Monday, because that's, that's the, the other thing that the House accomplished while they were in town is they voted on whether or not to accept a committee report from the, the House Ethics and Rules Committee on whether to censure Representative Priscilla Giddings and remove her from one of her committees. Now we've covered that ethics complaint in depth. We've covered what led up to it. You can find that past coverage um, on our blog, which you'll find linked at idahoptv.org slash Idaho reports. Logan, can you talk about Monday's debate and the tension in, in that discussion? Yeah, it was an interesting um, procedural situation we found ourselves in where in May, at the end of the longest legislative session Idaho has ever seen, the Senate adjourned signing die as they usually do, saying we're done for the year. But the House kept their foot in the door and said they were going to make themselves come back before December. And so in that intervening time, there was a ethics investigation that we have covered in detail, as you said, into Representative Priscilla Giddings. And typically, if these investigations from the Ethics Committee happen in the interim, they're simply taken up the following year in the next session. But because this was a weird circumstance where the House was in a kind of limbo recess, the report and the recommendations had to be taken up by the end of the year or they would expire. So there were things left for the House to do when they came back. And I did not watch the debate as closely as I think you two did. So I will let Ruth 
give uh, some overview of the actual debate on the floor if she's able. I would say it was tense. There was a divide. Uh, definitely all of leadership supported her censure. For a little bit of context for listeners, a censure is like a formal expression of disapproval. And of course, she'll be um, stripped from her committee on the Commerce and Human Resources uh, Committee. I mean, other things, there were allegations. Of course, uh, Priscilla Giddings is running for lieutenant governor. So is Scott Bedke, the Speaker of the House. At one point, Representative Nate took issue with the fact that the Speaker of the House was conducting the debate. He was leading the debate because that's what he does as Speaker of the House when uh, Scott Bedke did sign on to the initial complaint that was made against uh, Giddings. However, um, there were more than 20 uh, representatives that signed on to uh, the complaint uh, referencing Giddings. So it, it wasn't as if it were a Scott Bedke complaint, but his role as speaker is, of course, to always lead the debates. But, but that complaint was also submitted before either Bedke or Giddings had declared their candidacy for lieutenant governor. That complaint was submitted pretty soon after that email that linked to the newsletter that revealed personal information about um, Jane Doe. Absolutely. And um, Scott Bedke, I think, has repeatedly uh, said that, that he did not know she was running for lieutenant governor and he hadn't declared his candidacy yet either. Um, and the initial complaint that was filed first actually came from Representative Cheney, and the second complaint came from legislators, including um, Speaker Bedke. And an interesting thing about this is it is an internal House matter before the Ethics Committee. This is not a criminal investigation. This is not was not a trial, as it was sometimes characterized back in August. Um, the House of Representatives sets the standards of conduct for its members. Someone, um, someone on the floor, I don't remember who it was during the debate, but said that misconduct and uh, conduct unbecoming of a legislator is in the eye of the beholder. It's kind of you know, different people think what she did was appropriate. Some people think it wasn't appropriate. And so there was kind of this debate of like, well, who's going to be the judge? And the fact that this is an internal matter means that the House itself is going to be the judge. If her conduct is in the eye of the beholder, there are 70 beholders on the floor of the House. The House can at any time by a two-thirds majority uh, vote to expel a member like we saw back in 2020 when Representative John Green from Coeur d'Alene uh, was convicted in Texas of a uh, case where if you are a convicted felon, you cannot hold a, a seat in the legislature. So it it's not like it was some plot to go after Giddings. It is standard for the House to uh, set its own rules and set its own conduct and as a group come together and say, this is where the line is, this is what's appropriate and what's not. And I think a couple lawmakers brought up some really, really good points. Representative Judy Boyle said that, you know, from the beginning, it was clear that the House Ethics Committee and its proceedings were not set up to deal with things like the Von Ellinger complaint. You know, the, the, the House Ethics Committee proceedings were set up to deal with things like, um, you know, is, is a lawmaker benefiting from legislation and did they not properly declare a potential conflict? It was not set up to publicly handle um, such a sensitive and, and traumatizing discussion. 
quite frankly. And, and I thought that was a very good point by Representative Boyle. And that was the separate ethics hearing, of course, but she did bring up this point that this process is murky and it isn't always clear. And perhaps some of the house rules are not always clear. So Logan, when you say, you know, there are 70 beholders in that body, there, there were some who were saying, look, I wouldn't have done what she did. Um, I don't know if it's appropriate for us to come out and say, this action was enough to remove you from a committee. Clearly the majority of both Republicans and every single Democrat disagreed with that. They thought that what Priscilla Giddings did was not just conduct unbecoming, but also Representative Crane had said multiple times in August that he felt like they had given her every opportunity to apologize or explain herself or work with the committee. And that seemed to have changed the trajectory almost more than the original action did. That was a big takeaway for me, Ruth. Yeah, absolutely. I think. Many of the legislators agree that Priscilla Giddings should not have shared the link. Um, she should not have put it in her, uh, you know, formal legislative newsletter. But one of the bigger issues is that they have accused Giddings of being evasive and combative and publicly disrespectful. They've accused her of lying or if not lying, perhaps sort of telling half truths, maybe not telling the whole story. And the ethics committee has said they invited her multiple times to speak um, before the public hearing. She chose not to participate during the public hearing. She chose not to be present quite a bit. And folks like Representative Crane and some of the other legislators on the committee felt like that was disrespectful, that they were trying to take this issue seriously, both for um, to, to respect the integrity of the House, to respect uh, Jane Doe, um, and to respect Priscilla Giddings. She's an elected official. She holds authority and she's entitled to her seat. And nobody's going to kick you out of that seat without a real hearing, without real cause. And I got the impression that the ethics committee definitely felt like she was not taking the issue seriously when everyone else was taking the issue seriously. I don't think that did her any favors. It almost seemed as if that was even more aggravating. It exacerbated the problem. Yeah, that, that was one of my big takeaways too. And, and that said, Representative Giddings had a lot of supporters in the House gallery, many of whom were vocal during the, uh, the debate itself. Um, and you know, we'll, we'll see how this plays out in next year's primary election. And I'm sure one of the other things that's going to play out in the primary election, too, is what the House and Senate did or didn't do with the legislation that was in front of them this week. 36 draft pieces of legislation. By Wednesday afternoon, only one of them had passed. Uh, Ruth, can you give us a rundown of broad overview of topics that these bills covered? Sure. Uh, almost all of them were tied in one way or another to government control. Uh, of course, they focused on mandatory vaccines, uh, mandatory masking for children. Uh, many of the pieces of legislation would have allowed exemptions for employees. Um, an employee could, uh, for example, uh, 
claim a religious exemption, or I believe Representative DeMordant um, pitched a piece of legislation that would have allowed uh, natural immunity to be a valid exemption to not being vaccinated. Uh, so they ran the gamut for the variety of exemptions that would have uh, been allowed. Others would have uh, prohibited employers from asking if a uh, if a person is or is not vaccinated. Uh, Representative Mendai called that bill uh, "Don't Ask, Don't Tell," uh, which, of course, is a term used for uh, other former uh, government policies. I understand where the use of the phrase don't ask, don't tell in relation to this policy comes from where employees are not required to tell their employer if they're vaccinated and the employers are not able to ask. But the don't ask, don't tell policy regarding homosexuality in the U.S. military was where you were not allowed to tell if you were not a straight person. If if your sexuality came out, you were punished and discharged. It's it's not quite the same situation, which I've found to be um, kind of ironic as there were also bills to amend the uh, the Idaho Human Rights Act, which uh, queer people have been fighting to amend for more than a decade in the state of Idaho. That was a really interesting parallel, absolutely. Uh, and, and there was a lot of frustration that after years and years and years of attempts to add the words protections for LGBTQ plus Idahoans in the Idaho Human Rights Act, that there was a proposal that came during a very short session that Idahoans didn't have much time to review and it sailed through the house. Yeah, that was an exemption that would have uh, prohibited uh, individuals from, I guess, questioning what a religious belief is. I mean, most employers, for example, the employers in town that have uh, mandated vaccines have offered religious exemptions. And what the employee does is um, they provide information about why this is contrary to their religion and why they don't believe that they should be vaccinated for whatever reason. And that's um, that's true. There are faiths that don't believe in blood transfusions and uh, medical care, Western medicine, variety of issues. I think the fear was that it would have um, diminished what true freedom of religion is. Some lawmakers, uh, like Representative Cheney, Representative Marshall, were afraid that you are diminishing the seriousness of what freedom of religion is. Um, we live in a country where you are free to practice any faith you want. By allowing people, uh, Representative Marshall used the term mask. He was afraid that people would use religion as a mask essentially to get out of vaccination, which is not what faith is about. And it's certainly not what the real meaning of having freedom of religion is. There have been world wars fought over religion and some legislators I think were afraid that this would diminish that. But then there was the question too, over whether it's appropriate for an employer or an HR person to say, you know what? I don't think your religious belief is sincere enough and therefore you're gonna be discharged. And I think that there, there's a conversation to be had there too, especially as we heard testimony from people saying my religious exemption was denied. We did, we heard several pieces of uh, testimony from uh, either individuals themselves or uh, on behalf of uh, their spouse. 
And many of the lawmakers, I think, were um, touched by that and moved by that, that they these were folks who were having to choose between their faith and their job. And that's a difficult place to be in because everybody needs to pay the bills. Is it perhaps easier to just get the vaccination? Uh, some folks would say the government is incentivizing you to get the vaccination. Other folks, uh, many of the people who testified would argue the government is trying to restrict your beliefs or make you choose something that you don't believe in. Um, you know, I've written about different groups in Idaho, different faiths who genuinely believe that Western medicine is the product of Satan, essentially, you know, and um, they would be damned to hell for, for receiving this vaccination. And I, I agree, Melissa, that's something that what, how do you balance that? I don't think you should have to justify your faith to, to an HR person. So how do you balance it? It was kind of philosophy week at the Idaho legislature. We had really in-depth, really intense conversations on the House floor about the nature of religion and government's role in evaluating it. Over on the Senate side of the building in the State Affairs Committee, we had really interesting committee discussions about what the government's proper role is as an intermediary between employers and employees. Um, and to touch back on the religion thing, in one of the... Uh, Senate hearings, we had several citizens say that they were opposed to the idea of uh, exemption bills, not because they wanted people to get vaccinated, but because they objected to having to apply for an exemption. They argued that it is my religious freedom to just say, no, I shouldn't have to submit to testing or provide proof of having antibodies. I should just be able to say, no, I don't want to get vaccinated. And that's my choice. Right. There shouldn't be mandates in the first place. So therefore, exemption bills shouldn't be necessary. And I thought that was really interesting. I, I also thought it was interesting that you heard some people who focused just on the philosophical role of government and business in these decisions, that even these medical decisions that people make for themselves. Mixed into there, there were there was also a lot of misinformation about COVID and the vaccine and medical treatment and how serious the pandemic is. And, and, and I just have to know, I mean, there are a lot of people, including every Republican governor in the United States, every Democratic governor in the United States, including those who are suing the Biden administration right now, every single one of them is vaccinated. You can be philosophically against mandates and also not deny the science of vaccination or how serious the pandemic is. And we did get some of that in testimony, but there was also a lot of misinformation. There was an alarming amount of misinformation. For the purposes of this podcast, it's it's best not to repeat it, but- But it, but it was there, but it was there. It was there. And my takeaway from it was that a lot of that misinformation is based in fear. Um, pregnant women, for example, is a great example. When women are pregnant, they are incredibly cautious uh, and don't want to endanger the life of an unborn child, especially women who have been trying for a long time to get pregnant, or maybe women who have had a previous miscarriage and really want this pregnancy um, to be as healthy as it can be. And uh, one of the exemptions that Representative Mordon, should, it, should the bill have moved, it would have been for pregnant women. Um, but 
physicians in our state, at the CDC, um, and across the country have said overwhelmingly um, the vaccine is safe for pregnant women and they encourage pregnant women to be vaccinated because simply by being pregnant, they are already at a greater risk for hospitalization. Uh, we also know that um, in later stages of uh, COVID, pregnant women sometimes uh, suffer stillborns and I can't imagine how devastating that would be to any woman. So I guess my point is, is this misinformation, it isn't based on people being ignorant. It's a lot of it is based in genuine fear. Um, people want to live happy, healthy lives. They don't want to be afraid. And I feel that I don't want to be afraid. I, I want to be happy and healthy. And it's interesting that Logan called philosophy week because there was also a lot of discussion about individual rights versus the public rights. And of course that comes into play when you're talking about healthcare workers or home health workers. Do um, the people who employ them uh, or do the patients they serve have a right to know whether or not uh, that individual is vaccinated? And it depends on who you ask. Ron Mendive would say no. He would say, no, you don't have a right to know. Uh, Representative Birch asked multiple people that, um, giving the impression that he believes uh, you, that you do have the right to know if you're a patient. Um, if he offered the example of, um, you know, if he had a home health care worker for an elderly parent, is he allowed to say, no, I'm not going to hire you because you're not vaccinated and I don't believe you're safe to be caring for an elderly immune compromised person. And I don't know what the right answer is. And so I don't know, my takeaway from it is that I don't think these are problems that you can solve in three days. And I don't mean to diminish the seriousness of what the legislators do, because I know many of them have been working on it for weeks, months. They regularly visit with constituents and stakeholders. And so I don't think it's fair to say they did this in three days. I think this was legislation that they had been working on and had been uh, negotiating with with stakeholders and a variety of parties. But it is a hard question to answer. I don't know. Do patients have a right to know? Do HR people have a right to ask? Um, coronavirus is incredibly infectious. Um, I know there are other infectious diseases such as tuberculosis, um, which is incredibly infectious and it's airborne there's a cure for tuberculosis and uh, patients are, uh, it would be illegal to not, not take the medication to cure tuberculosis because uh, the government and the courts have decided that the carrier, the person carrying tuberculosis is a risk to the public. They are not just a risk to themselves. Um, so it's tricky. Ruth, briefly, one of the issues that was brought up was workman's compensation, workers' compensation for injuries that were related to mandated vaccines. This is something that the state has actually already dealt with without legislation. Can you really quick tell us what you found on Wednesday? Sure. So the Industrial Commission handles uh, workman comp claims. If you're injured at, a, um, at work, whether you break your leg or fall down the stairs or whatever issue you have, you go through the industrial commission and they testified that there had been 
they had already handled some claims related to coronavirus and the coronavirus vaccine. So specifically, uh, I filed a public record request and I found that the Industrial Commission had received 2,338 employee claims related to COVID-19 as of October 31st. Of those 2,353 were specifically related to the vaccine. Of the 53, only 11 of the claims were denied. Um, full copies of the claims are not subject to public record. Of course, they have personal information about um, people's illnesses or their injuries, personal identifying information. So I couldn't see what the 53 claims were, but they were categorized as being related to the vaccine. Uh, and so, of course, through workman's comp, sometimes they can pay a person's medical expenses should they need medical expenses, or they can pay uh, for lost wages if the employee was unable to attend work specifically because of a vaccine. And briefly, Ruth, that was just one of the many, many issues that was left on the table when lawmakers adjourned on Wednesday. You spoke to Senate Minority Leader Michelle Stennett and Senate Majority Leader Kelly Anthon on Wednesday after adjournment for Friday's program. Did you get a sense that we're gonna be seeing a lot of these bills resurrected for the 2022 regular session starting in January? Whether they are these specific bills, I don't know. Some of them definitely need amendments. Many of them were gonna be sent to general orders anyway. Uh, for listeners, general orders is, is the method in which uh, legislators can amend a bill. So whether it's these specific bills, I don't know. But I do think that this is an ongoing issue and it is a concern uh, for many folks in Idaho and many of the legislators. How far can schools go? How far can public health districts go? How far can the Department of Health and Welfare go when it comes to what some people see as uh, controlling private citizens or controlling private businesses? Can you mandate a business have certain safety precautions or should we be telling them at all what they can and cannot do when we are an at-will employment state? So the short answer is yes. Yes, they're gonna continue, I think, to talk about business owners' rights. They're going to talk about parents' rights and they're gonna talk about the role of school districts and the public health districts. I think that, that'll definitely be an ongoing topic of contention. I spoke to Senate State Affairs Chairwoman um, Patty Ann Lodge on Tuesday afternoon, and her committee was the only committee on the Senate side that met the whole week. They held hours-long hearings but did not pass any bills. And so I asked her, um, what's the, you know, before this came to light, I asked her, what's the likelihood of these bills moving forward? Um, how are these discussions going? And she told me that things are just moving way too fast in these three days for lawmakers to really fully evaluate these bills and think through the ramifications. And she really spoke to a collaborative legislative process where a lot of lawmakers are on a committee kicking ideas around. They take testimony from a lot of citizens, from a lot of lobbyists and industry groups, and really evaluate things from all angles. And she said that, um, you know, this week we're trying to get things done super fast, trying to amend things on the fly. Um, and she said that just it's it's not worth making things worse with a poorly written law than passing something to say that we passed something was, was the gist of what she said. Um, and she pointed out to me that 
the January session is less than two months away. So I think in some total, even though this legislative session didn't result in any new laws, it was a great opportunity for the lawmakers to kind of take the public's temperature and see where we're at in this pandemic. And she also pointed out that um, they convened to address the federal mandates on vaccines. And those circumstances are changing rapidly. Just this morning on Wednesday, we heard that uh, the OSHA mandate specifically is being rescinded because of, of a court challenge. And so she was kind of of the belief that even if we pass anything, there's no guarantee that it's going to do what we want it to do. And we're better off putting the ideas out here right now and having the next two months to kind of think about them and tweak them and make them better. And hopefully things will be settled down in a little more concrete in January. And we can truly address what the citizens are wanting us to. I would note that um, I believe yesterday, 33 more Idahoans were uh, reported dead due to COVID-19 related causes and our effects our infection rate statewide is still well above 5%. I don't mean to sound like a pessimist, but I am a pessimist. And I do think the infection rate will still be above 5% by the time they reconvene in January. That's just the way the virus spreads. Coronavirus isn't going anywhere. She's unpacked, she's moved in, she's here to stay. <laughs> and I think we're at the point where government just needs to find a way to balance that. And cases and test positivity rate and hospitalizations are all thankfully going down. I think we're all happy to see those numbers on the downslide. But as we saw after last December's peak, we were really hoping that was the end of it. We heard from public health officials that we might see and will likely see more waves as more variants um, develop, which is really unfortunate. So. Um, Thank you, Ruth, for that. And short, stay tuned for 2022. Logan, before we wrap up, I want to ask you about a new challenge to the map submitted by the Redistricting Commission. We found out about it on Wednesday afternoon, shortly after adjournment. Um, can you give us a brief rundown of what this challenge is about? Um, yeah, the legislature is not the only thing that's going on this week, unfortunately. Uh, the <laughs> Redistricting Commission submitted maps last week, and we, as expected, have lawsuits. The um, Ada County Commission is suing because they are unhappy with the way that the map splits their county up into multiple legislative districts. Um, to make a very long story short, the Redistricting Commission is supposed to split counties as few times as possible, and Ada County says, you split us more than was necessary. There's court precedent that uh, you're not supposed to break up a county if you can help it. And so there is a northern area of Ada County that's grouped in with Jim County. Southern area is grouped in with Owyhee and Canyon counties. They also cross the county line uh, to group Star and Middleton together. And Ada County commissioners are very unhappy with uh, how their county has been cannibalized is the word that uh, Commissioner Rodbeck told me last week. Right, you had you had spoken to Commissioner Beck about the commission's concerns. Were there any surprises or new information that you saw in the petition that was filed on Wednesday? Um, not any surprises, but a little bit more details than I had before. Um, there are kind of two Supreme Court cases that are the precedent as far as county splits with redistricting. There's the Twin Falls case, where um, and that's kind of the the one that most people know about, where the court ruled that according to Idaho State Constitution 
if there's a map with seven county splits and a map with eight county splits, you have to pick the seven split map. You, you have to do as few as possible. There's a second case called the Bingham County case, which I was not as familiar with, but it is cited in the petition. And uh, the court ruled that if a county uh, is divided, like say Ada County, it's divided into a bunch because the county has far more population than a single legislative district. Um, they say that a county can be divided, but it shouldn't be divided specifically to achieve ideal district size if you don't have to split it externally. So it, it gets kind of weedsy here, but the commission this year really focused on equal protection and making sure that all of the districts have as close to the same population as possible. That's a federal concept. So they said, we're gonna weigh that more heavily this round than the state constitution. We have to adhere to the federal constitution, but there is Supreme Court, state Supreme Court precedent that if, I'm, I'll just use Ada County because it's the concrete example we have this year, you can split Ada County into nine legislative districts and they're kind of big. They have a lot of people in them more than they should in theory, if in a perfect world, but it's within the acceptable range. And so the commission split pieces of Ada County off to group them with other counties to get those deviations smaller, trying to really focus on equal representation. But um, based on the Bingham County case that's cited in the petition here, it sounds like they're not allowed to do that. And they're really supposed to keep, you know, if you're gonna put part of Ada County with another county, you should only do it once, not three times, is what is what the, the petition is arguing. Certainly a lot to keep track of. And this doesn't mean there won't be other challenges because, you know, as, as we heard last week um, and before the Shoshone Bannock tribe had its own concerns with its community being split. Um, we will keep following this. We have much more online um, and on Friday's show. Ruth Brown, Logan Finney, thank you so much for all your hard work this week. And thank you for listening. For more, visit our blog. You'll find the link on idahoptv.org slash Idaho Reports. And as I said, we'll have much more on Friday's show. Idaho Reports airs Fridays at 8 p.m. on Idaho Television. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.